Amen and good morning. It is Father's Day, which means my gift to my children are some Father's Day stories. You see, I don't do dad jokes. This morning I woke up, my son says to me, have you seen the dog bowl? I said, I didn't even know he could. Ah, that was not too bad. We have two dogs in our house now, Timex and Rolex. They are watchdogs. <laughs> Finally, for Father's Day, my kids did get me a gym membership. The weird thing about this membership is that every member has to go door to door and recruit people. The gym is called Jehovah's Fitness. More seriously, though, I do have a story about someone who can be an example to all of us dads. Have you heard about Audie Murphy? Audie Murphy uh, set a great example for dad, not because of what his job was, but what he did in his job is exemplary. Audie Murphy grew up and he always wanted to be a soldier. He lived in the 30s and 40s, and in 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he decided he's going to enlist. So he went down to the Army station and they rejected him. Went to the Navy base, they rejected him. Same thing at the Marines, they didn't want him. Audie was 5'5", underweight. He didn't meet the minimum requirements for joining. He was a real-life Steve Rogers in that sense. But eventually, I guess they started taking just about everybody in World War II, and he, they enlisted him. They were glad that they did because Audie Murphy ended up being the, uh, one of the greatest, most decorated war veterans of all time in American history. Phenomenal stories about this guy. One story was uh, he was in the German theater, and about 100 yards off, he saw about 15 or so Germans in a house, and they were surrendering. They came out of the house. They waved the white flag, and Audie was leading his company. He said to his best friend, go up and round those guys up. The best friend goes up, and the German pulls out a Luger and kills the best friend. Audie says, everybody back. I'm going in. So he takes off solo into open fire, goes into the house, comes out with 11 German prisoners. Also two that were wounded, he killed six. It's an amazing act of putting himself first to benefit other people. Another story, same theater. He and his company were together and there was a nearby American tank destroyer. You know, these vehicles are designed to de destroy the enemy's tank. Well. The Germans shelled this tank destroyer, and it caught on fire. And Audie's there, and the entire crew of the American tank destroyer abandoned and ran for the woods. Audie screams out, all my guys retreat to the woods. And then he hops in the burning tank destroyer. He gets up there. The big cannon doesn't work, but there's still a 50 cal on top. For the next hour, this guy holds off 50 German troops ends up killing or wounding them all. Of course, he got injured. He stumbles off, 
Up come the medics, and they say, now we're taking you behind the lines. And he says, no, I only want to be treated here with my men. Don't take me away. Why did he do this? It's because he loved his men. He loved them deeply. One definition I read this week, a definition of love, it's this. It's to continually give of yourself for the benefit of others. Continually give of yourself for the benefit of others. And this week, as we begin or continue to dig through the Bible together, we try to go book by book here at TCC, we're going to see this type of love. Uh, since today is Father's Day, it will be a call to all fathers and everybody else to love in this exemplary way. So go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. Turn to 1 John. When you're there, say Krispy Kreme. 1 John is towards the end of the Bible, right before Jude and Revelation. Last week we began the book. Today we'll wrap it up. We learned last week, 1 John was written by the beloved John the Apostle about 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. He's in the sunset of his life and he's surveying the current church situation in the early church. And he takes notes and he noticed some things that still apply to us today in the modern church. He sees people leaving the church for more progressive doctrine. He also sees people who are uncertain of who Jesus is. He sees people who don't know whether they should trust the leadership of the church or not trust the leadership of the church. And so his response to this, what we saw last week, is to focus on God. You would think he would focus on all of these problems, but John says, no, you must know who God is. If you're going to persevere through all of these storms of life, let me tell you who God is. He grounds his argument by saying, I, I was actually walking with Jesus, so I should know who he is. And he says, first off, we saw last week, God is light. He's light that reveals your own sin. He's light that reveals a savior. He's light that reveals how to live. And today he's going to say to you, God is love. God is love. Now, by that, he doesn't mean God is only love, as if he's not also ever-present or holy. No, he's just emphasizing God is love because he knows that's crucial for you to remember today. If you've read through 1 John before, you know that thematically John uh, goes back and forth, bouncing from different themes. And so, uh, we'll have to do that a little bit today. Thankfully, it's only a couple pages long, so hopefully you won't have trouble finding where we're at. But look here in chapter 4 of 1 John, beginning in verse 8. You'll see where I get this message from today. Verse 8, chapter 4. John says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. What does it mean for God to be love? Well, remember the definition I gave earlier means God continually gives of himself for the benefit of the other's people. In fact, more specifically, God gives himself to you for your joy in him. That's what it means for God 
to be love. And today we'll see three ways in which God is love here from the scriptures. And we're also going to contrast that with what the world says love is. So let's get started here in 1 John chapter 4, moving on to verse 9. We read this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son. The first way that God is love is God is love in that he sent his only son. Keep reading. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So to John, the appearance of Jesus defines what love is. Earlier in the book, he said something similar. Back in chapter 3, verse 14, he said, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Of course, there's numerous ways in which the coming of Jesus is loving. John points out a couple here I just want to highlight for you. Look back in verse 9 here. He emphasizes that Jesus came so that we might live through him. In other words, Jesus came to give eternal life. In fact, Convincing you of this aspect of God's love is one of the chief purposes of God. Uh, John writing this whole book about God. 1 John 5.13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, what does he mean by eternal life here? Well, eternal life has both a now focus and a future focus. Eric Raymond said this, this is a quote. He says, eternal life is not simply the quantity or how long, but it's also the quality of life. How good. The happiness, satisfaction, freedom, confidence, comfort, and humility that come to the believer are the beams that radiate from the center of the gospel. The sight and the warmth we feel as Christians is what I mean by the quality of life. When we think of eternal life the way that Jesus and his apostles lay it out, then we are truly encouraged. Our minds, our hearts, they're unfastened from the rusted out sinking ship of this world and firmly applied to the soul-satisfying truth of God's eternal word. This is the chartal of the eternal kingdom. We're now less than two weeks out from sending a team from this church of 11 people, mostly students, to the country of Moldova to do evangelistic work. So that's coming up. But what I've noticed in the days preceding our trip is among our group, there's a buzz now. We're fixing to leave. We're fixing to go on mission. We're starting to prepare. And it's changing the way we live now because of this future reality of our trip. That's what John has in mind about eternal life. The future reality of forever changes our everyday, our dreams, our joys. This week I was talking to one of our church members and they had the typical horrible vacation experience. Just this week, a lot of us are traveling. 
Uh, they were traveling. They took off in the car. They had a good vacation. But on the way back, the car broke down. It's going and then it's shut down. The mechanic comes, pronounces the death sentence on the vehicle. Family has to come pick some of them up. Some of them fly back home. But I tell you, when I was talking to this person, I thought, how would I, I respond if that happened to me? I, I've been there. I've had vehicles break on vacation. It's the worst. But I'm talking to this person, and in their face, they are radiant. Why? Because he told me they were able to keep eternal life in such perspective that the everyday things of this world, when they go wrong and bananas and bonkers, it didn't drag them under. That's what John is saying to you today. It's loving of God to send his son to give you eternal life. Not just the fact that you'll live forever in glory with Jesus, that's loving enough, but it drips into this world, giving you hope in the everyday. Another way John says that God sending his son is love. You see in verse 10 here, chapter 4, verse 10. About halfway through, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation, we talked a little bit about last week. Here is it defined by author Kevin DeYoung. He describes it very well. He says, propitiation, if you don't know this big Bible word, here's what it is. It's the pacifying, placating, or appeasing of God's wrath. Uh, the easiest way to remember what propitiation is, it means God is made pro-us. He's pro-us. Christ's death not only removed the moral stain of sin, we call it expiation, but he also removed the personal offense of sin. Because of this propitious gift, our sins can be removed. The debt can be paid. Our relationship is restored. And our legal status irrevocably altered. Jesus Christ is our righteous advocate. The one who turns away the wrath of God justly against it. This is propitiation. God in Christ turning away his wrath that you deserved. And so God, God speaks through John and he says to us, eternal life, propitiation, these are the loving things caught up within the sending of my son to you. And it's Father's Day. You might be here as a guest. You might be listening online as a guest. Somebody told me last week, they said, hey, I have an unbeliever in my family and they listened to your sermon online. If that's you, we're so glad you're listening. And I just want you to know that God is broadcasting through this word, through the text, that he loves you and you can have eternal life in him. You can have propitiation in Jesus Christ. It comes through the sending of his only son. This proves that God is loving dads of TCC. Know that God calls you to believe this to the marrow. God wants you to know that your sins have been propitiated, that the wrath of God against you has been taken away so that you may have eternal life, and then you parent out of that. There's security that rests in knowing that someone is not against you. It helps you to be for your own children. 
That message from 1 John is for you. Parent today, knowing that God loves you. He gave his only son for you. Secondly, John says God is love in that he makes you his child. If you believe in Jesus and trust him, turn from your sins, confess them, repent, God makes you his child. Look back in 1 John 3, verse 1. John writes this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, listen to how he talks about us. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me wrap this up here. John's emphasis and sum it up here. In this text, being a child of God means two things. You're God's children in that you look like him and you love like him. Look like him and you love like him. First, how do we look like him? Look at verse 2 again. Gladman prayed this. What we will be has not yet appeared. That's talking about Jesus who has not come again the second time. Hasn't appeared yet, but we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is. It's talking about here the idea of humans being broken and needing to have progress. Talked about taking a car trip. Man, one of the things I do not like about my vehicle, by the way, on the way to church today, no joke, I hit two squirrels. It's a personal record. I wasn't even trying to this time. I hit two squirrels. I don't like that about my ride to work. But what I also don't like is that not too long ago, I was just driving along innocently, and you've had this happen. The truck in front of you, a rock falls off, bounces, bounces, boom, right on the windshield. And now there's a crack right where I have to look every time that I drive. The, the glass is still there, but there's a crack there. And sometimes it just spreads. This is the notion of the human nature presented in the Bible. We are cracked. We are broken. The image of God that was once there in us is still here, uh, but it's cracked. And John knows that, and he knows we need to change. So he's saying here that God is loving in that he is restoring the image of God in you to be the image of Christ. There's this idea of looking forward ahead, and in looking towards Jesus, he's actually changing and transforming you for my windshield you got to call a company and they come to your house and they give you an all new one with your human nature that's cracked only god can restore it and he talks about how he does this and how it's loving paul wrote about this too second corinthians 3 18 paul said we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God is lovingly making us into children that look like him. One day, you'll be a lot better. You'll look more like Jesus because God is restoring the image of Christ within you. Very loving. Secondly, when he talks about God as children, he wants you to know, uh, you as God's children, he wants you to know that God is also making us into children who love like God, who love like him. Skip ahead there to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 where we read, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. There's that children idea again, born of God. And everyone who loves the Father does what? Loves whoever has been born of him. Loved people love people. If you're God's child, then you have a special committed love for God's children. In the New Testament, we see this love is focused mainly towards the local church, towards other people in the church. Now look back in 1 John 3 with me. Verse 10, he says, this is how you know you're a child of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's only Two choices, you're following Christ, you're following the devil. How do I know which one I am? He says this, whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brother. There's a sense that you're proving your Christianity, it's being tested through your love for the local church. Verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him? How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. People loved by Jesus will love like Jesus. One fun thing about Father's Day is that you get to think about the memories of your kids Here's one of mine there with her dolly. And I was amazed at this age with my daughter as I would watch her carry her little dolly around, the things that she would say. She would rock the dolly and I would listen in and she would things, say things like, you need to get a good night's sleep tonight so that you can rejuvenate your body. I'd be like, that's not a toddler saying. Why is she saying that? And then she'll put the baby doll in the crib and she might say, oh, you need to eat your vegetables. They're full of fiber and low in carbohydrates. What? But then I got it. She was loving the doll as she had been loved herself, right? 
a child loving like her parents loved her. And God is making us into children who love like him. And fathers, we can be dads that love like God. We can show mercy and kindness and gentleness and attention, persevering servanthood, all of these things. We can love like our fathers loved us. Thirdly, God is love in that he calms your fears. We've already seen God is love and that he sent his son. God is love and that he makes you his child. Thirdly, God is love and that he calms your fears. There's an experience that's pretty common to Christianity, and it goes something like this. Once you see the glory of the gospel, once you understand your sin, and you see how great Jesus is, people often begin to have these questions of doubt. They often begin to say, am I actually worthy of Jesus dying for me? Maybe it's your past sins. Maybe it's your current habits. Maybe it's some shame because someone has victimized you. It could be any number of things that prompt you to say, is God really here working for me? Is he really for me? These doubts creep up. These fears creep in. But one way that God is supremely loving is he can calm these fears. Look at chapter 3, verse 24. 1 John says this, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. So how do we know that God is really here and working in my life? How do I know that he's for me? Is what he says, by the Spirit whom he has given us. You see, as we pursue God's commandment to love each other well, in a selfless way, a supernatural thing begins to happen. The Holy Spirit will assure you and give you confidence that you belong to God. He can awaken you to this mass of love that God has for you. He can awaken you to God's presence within you. That's the role of of the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. John writes, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. Why? so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God loves you. You love other people. The Spirit comes in and gives you confidence that God is working here. He's for you. Yes, things will be all right. God is present. He's abiding in you. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. In other words, if you're living in the love of God and loving others, God will take away your internal doubts and fears, really combat that really hard. But perfect love casts out fear. That's God's love towards you. If you remember God's love towards you in Christ as you're living it out with your hands and your feet, that will cast out fear. This verse reminds me of Jesus. Remember the time he was in the boat with his disciples? And they're all freaking out because it's storming. 
Jesus is on a pillow. He's chilling. They wake him up. Wake up, Jesus. He calms the storm. He created storms. After all, he can handle it. He calms the storm, but that's really not what he's after. So many times in Jesus' ministry, he's after the heart, right? What does he say? Remember, he turns to his disciples. He said, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? He's not condemning them. He's just saying, put it together. I am here, and my presence should calm your fears. Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I have the power to save you? Writer Stephanie Jane Judd says this regarding the story of Jesus on a boat. Jane Judd says this, As I consider the chaos within, it is comforting to me that Jesus is in the business of quelling the storm, of bringing chaos into submission to his calm. He brings faith where there is fear, patience where there is impatience, love where there is envy, and strength when I am weak. Come, Lord Jesus, come speak to my heart. Be still. I don't miss the promise of God here. When you see a promise of God, you say, cling to it. Hold on to it. Here's the promise. If you abide or continue in spirit-empowered love for others, you abide in God. And God abides in you. He's with you. He won't leave you. He's working. He abides. He lives with you. And he calms your fears. That's one way that he loves you. And this presence of God can not only calm these fears and doubts about salvation, can calm other fears in your life as well. Counselor Ed Welch says this, if you've ever walked among the giant redwoods, you'll never be overwhelmed by the size of a dogwood tree. Or if you've ever been through a hurricane or a spring rain, it's nothing to fear. And if you have been in the presence of the Almighty God, everything that once controlled you suddenly has less power. That's the idea John has for you today. That's a promise. Come to God. Experience his love and love others, and you will feel the Almighty presence abiding in you. Isaiah 49, sorry, 41.10 says it like this. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is love in that he calms your fears. So as we've just been going through this text today, We've seen surely God is love and that he sent his own son. He makes you his child and that he calms your fears. Now I want to look at one more thing. If we really want to make one point clear when we talk about the love of God. Biblical love is not how you will see love portrayed in our culture. In the songs, in the movies, in the media. Love is something completely different than biblical love. So I just want to take a moment and contrast them. Fathers, this is for you and everyone else, but fathers, God has put you in a place so that you can teach your children, especially as they're coming into the teenage year, the difference between biblical love 
and the things of this world, this pretender over here, right? So a man named uh, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called The Rule of Love. And in there, he's a believer. He gives a good description of some false assumptions underlying the world's view of love, right? So what I want to do is contrast 1 John's view of love with this portrait of the world's love in the book that I just read. All right, so here we go. Here is one false assumption that underlines a worldly secular view of love. First, assumption one, no moral boundaries or judgments can be placed on love. There's no moral boundaries on love in the world. Think about it. You can justify anything by saying that it's loving or it's motivated by love, right? At that point, love actually becomes God, right? Uh, love can justify extramarital affairs. Love can justify divorce, fornication, cohabitation, never disciplining your kids. Bowing to love can justify anything you want. Uh, but in the biblical view of love, there are certainly boundaries. In fact, in biblical love, we see that certain actions that the world calls love are actually called sins. They're against God. Certain lifestyles the world loves are condemned in the Bible. In fact, 1 John 5.17 says, All wrongdoing is a sin, particularly a sin against God. Furthermore, we learn in 1 John that Jesus came to destroy sin. The devil's stronghold. You won't hear about the devil's strongholds in the world's view of love. But if you read 1 John 3.8, Jesus says, or John says about Jesus, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The world will say, well, you can do whatever you want to do. There's really no boundaries here. As long as you love somebody. John says, no, that's against God. That's sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to what Layman says here. It's a great quote. He says, there's no dictionary definition of love that hovers outside of the universe independent of God so that God answers to it. Rather, God in himself provides the definition, the reality of what love is. Love is not an abstract concept, but it's a personal quality of God. It's a super important that you understand. God's own character gives us the definition and standards of love. Anything called love that does not have its source in God is not love. Which means that people today might say they love love. Oh, I love love. But if they reject God, they don't really love love. Uh, so we carry around something called love which possesses all the more moral authority of God himself. The trouble is, it's not God, right? It's nothing more or less than our own desires, especially our desires to rule ourself. What the world will call love is a desire to rule one's self. Love is not 
God. God is love, but love is not God. Here's a second assumption that's false. The secular view of love assumes love means unconditional acceptance. You may have heard this. Love means you must accept me unconditionally. That's not true. Uh, in an interview, uh, Ellen DeGeneres, in, on her uh, TV show, she was once discussing the legitimacy of non-binary gender. Is that true or what? She thought about it. She was open processing then. Uh, and then she just kind of said, I quote, you know, I think love is just about letting people be who they are and love who they want to love. And if you're not hurting anybody, there's nothing wrong with it. Right? One challenge with this view is who settles whether you're hurting somebody or not, right? In fact, this phrase, this answer blew up in Ellen's face in 2020 because her cast and crew behind the scenes came out and said, Ellen's not loving towards us. There's all kinds of racism going on back here. And Ellen says, yes, I am loving. I'm not hurting anybody. And they say, yes, you are hurting us. Racist? You see how that view of love is collapsing in on itself because there's no one to actually define what's hurtful and what's not. And Jesus certainly does not unconditionally accept all truth claims about non-binary gender or accept all lifestyles as long as they love each other. That's not what Jesus does. This wouldn't be true love because these things lead you away from God who is your ultimate joy. It wouldn't be loving for Jesus to say, hey, I'm going to lead you toward destruction. That's not what he's about. They hinder your joy. And they evoke the righteous anger of God. Of course, love is more than just unconditional acceptance. Actually, the antithesis of love and the essence of hate to to affirm lifestyle choices that will send you to the destruction of hell. Love does not mean unconditional acceptance. John says in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, these words come to mind. He said, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear about love. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Love originates from God. If someone's trying to define it for you without starting with God as their starting point, they're going to go awry. Assumption three, a false assumption about love that our world will make, Love and authority have nothing to do with one another. That's a false assumption in the world's view of love. Love and authority have nothing to do with one another. My job as a pastor has given me, over the years, a master class in parking lot conversations. That doesn't mean that I'm great at them, but that does mean I've seen a lot of things. And one thing I've seen just a couple weeks ago, I saw it again, I've seen it over and over again, is I'll be in the parking lot, before a funeral, after a wedding, after church. And I'm talking to dad, right? I'm talking to the father. And there's two or three children orbiting around, and mom is 
probably serving somewhere. And she says, dad, just watch the kid. That's all you got to do is keep an eye on these guys. So I'm talking to dad. And inevitably, little Junior is going to summon his Usain Bolt, take off towards the road, right? We're in the parking lot, but he's taking off to where the cars go, right? He's gone. Chariots of Fire music is playing. He's trucking it. What does dad do? In spite of the donut in his hand, he has cheetah reflexes. Boom, he goes. He catches Junior right before he's going into the dangerous spot. And what does he do? You know what he does. He asserts his authority in a loving way. He redirects this child so he doesn't run out into the area where the cars are. And he directs the kid. And the kid goes, you know, he goes the other way. Don't tell me love and authority are in opposition. Here's what the world will say. The world says, authority always restrains, but love frees, right? You'll hear that. Authority only exploits, but love empowers. Authority steals life, love saves life. This disassociation between love and authority really is nothing new. They've been divided ever since the serpent suggested to Adam and Eve that God's love and God's authority could not coexist. Thankfully, 1 John assures us that this unbelieving view of love, it will not win the day. It will be perpetuated in our culture, but it will not overrun God's kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 4, John says, uh, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than who is in the world. You're going to feel like everybody's against you and that we're losing. It's not true. He who's in you is greater than he is in the world. They're from the world. Therefore, they're going to speak from the world. Don't be shocked when you hear on CNN a different view of what love is. The world's going to listen to them. Verse 6, we're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Fathers, this year you have a chance to offer guidance and warning to your children. Tell them the broken tendencies of our culture where we fall short as humanity. Lehman writes this about our culture. He says, we're no longer interested in the God who is love. Rather, we're interested in our own ideas of love, which become God. God is love is traded for love is God. Instead of going before the creator of the universe and saying, tell us what you are like and how you define love, we start with our own views of love and we deify them. What a prayer this is for dads today. God, tell me and my children what you're like and how you define love. Fathers, we have a chance this week to show our children love as defined by Jesus, God's Son.
a God who gives himself for the joy of others. You can give yourself today, this week, for your children so that they will see how big and beautiful God is. Dad, be empowered that you are God's child. I don't know if you feel this as a father. I feel it sometimes. This week, I heard back-to-back words I didn't want to hear. One of the sentences was, hey, Pops, the clothes coming out of the dryer are still wet. Okay, I know what that means. Going to have to get in there, get to work. Another child comes up, hey, Pops, when I'm done running water, when I'm done brushing my teeth, the basin is still filled up. (laughs) It's not going down. In those moments, I don't want to be the daddy because the daddy's fixing these things. It can be so comforting and empowering to know, fathers, that you are God's child. The things that really matter, God's got a hold of. He's going to take care of, and he's done them in Jesus Christ. So let's hope in that. Today, this week, and forevermore, let's hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we do pray. Pray a prayer of thankfulness for what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. You have come giving of yourself so that our joy in you might increase. You have come and you have made everyone that trusts in you a child of God. You have come and you've made it possible to calm the storms of our heart through the work of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. God, we are so thankful. I pray for fathers and everyone else on this day, that we would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and we would come. We would come and rest in Jesus. To the very core we would trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.